because it's not about me. That's why, because, you know, I, I, I was raised to understand that this isn't about you. And, uh, so that's one of the reasons I joined the Navy. I dropped out of school my senior year in college at the university of Arizona, a couple miles down the road to join the Navy and try and become a seal because I knew it wasn't about me. And because I knew that if, if I wanted to see others enjoy this, what I would consider a blessing to live in the United States of America, it, I, I knew that it didn't just come freely. I, I mean, I know we say that and it, we say it at nauseum. We say freedom isn't free. And I, it's become so sloganized that I don't think, I think it's lost a lot of its meaning, but there's a lot of truth to that. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. Eli, you and I had a really interesting conversation um, this spring at that uh, elite hunter training forum in Montana. And you were telling me about when you came into Chris Kyle's SEAL team and, and kind of how rough they were on the new guys. And it, it wasn't necessarily hazing, but it was definitely holding to an exceptionally high standard and, uh, and, and, and not necessarily treating you very well. And I asked you you know, once you were in a leadership role there, did you treat the new guys like that? Uh, do you remember what your response was? You know, I, I don't remember exactly what my response was, but I think, uh, I think I probably, you know, told you exactly what I tell most people, you know, as soon as we, as soon as I had the opportunity to, uh, you know, make change and be one of the older guys that could affect culture, I remembered, you know, saying, Hey, let's, let's scrap that. Let's uh, let's make sure that, you know, we teach we spend our time teaching these guys the little that we knew because we want them to be as effective as possible in war. And that's not to say that we don't want our new guys and, and the guys coming into the organization to be respectful or to pay their dues because we absolutely did. And I think that that's uh, really important. And I help, I think that makes you appreciate when you become a leader if you've had to, you know, start from the bottom and work your way up, but yeah, the decision was made pretty early on. Hey, we're, we're not going to do, you know, we're not going to do something just because that's how we were raised. We're going to do what we think is right. We're going to do what we think 
uh, makes us the best fighting unit and we want brotherhood. We want cohesion. And, uh, you know, that wasn't always, you know, that wasn't always the case in uh, platoons prior. And, you know, I think that so much of it is just having strong enough leaders who are willing to say, hey, look, that might have been, you know, what we did yesterday. But just because it was what we did yesterday doesn't mean it's, uh, you know, it's the best way to go about it. So let's, uh, let's be open and willing to change, try new things. And, you know, as a kid, I'm, you know, I was a, I was raised in a Christian home and uh, my parents used to teach me all the time about the golden rule. And that is do unto others what you would have to do, you know, and treat, basically treat people the way you want to be treated. And so whether to me, whether you're in a leadership role, whether you're the CEO or the janitor, it, you know, it should, to me, it doesn't matter. I, I'm going to treat that individual the way I want to be treated because I believe that we are all created in God's image. And that means we all have intrinsic value and, I think we need to treat people that way. I agree, man. But I can't really describe to people how difficult it is to to make that change in a military unit, to, to not lead in the way that you were led. Uh, that takes not only courage, but creativity. And it takes knowing who you are as a person to understand that, hey, you know, I could, I could do this. I could lead in the same way that I was led. But yep. in order to do that, that means I have to be a different person from who I actually am. And if you can be authentic to yourself, you can be more effective as a leader, point blank. Yep. And, and it just, it takes an incredible amount of courage to do that. So what, what you told me in, in Montana, which cracked me up, because you are a Navy SEAL, you're a sniper in the SEALs, you're, you're a hard man in, in every way that matters. And uh, you said, no, man, I was more of a hugger. I didn't like getting treated like that. And for you yeah. to describe yourself that way is completely honest because every time I see you first order of business is a hug and, that's uh, and that's just who you are. And I think that that makes you better. That makes you more effective. And it's, I don't know, it, it got me very interested in, in who you are as a leader, just that one story. And that's what I want to get into today and Marine Corps leadership and Naval leadership, uh, on paper is very similar. I actually haven't had the opportunity to talk with, with people in the Navy very much about maybe some of the nuances and differences. And, uh, you know, the job of, of a tanker in the Marine Corps is different from that of, of a SEAL in the Navy or, or really any other profession within the Department of Defense. Right. So did you operate with the, with the leadership traits and principles as, as a guiding foundation? Well, you know, I think that um, you probably, as an officer, you probably got, you know, a lot more, I would say, institutional leadership training than I did. I think most of the leadership training that I got was OJT on the job. You know, um, I started out as an enlisted guy in the Navy. And by the time I left the Navy, I was an E6. So that's like middle barely middle management, right? However, like I said, I got most of my leadership experience watching um, leaders that, that I knew and respected and, you know, trying to borrow from them some of their, you know, some of the things I saw that worked, some of the things that I saw that I appreciated and liked, and then trying to scrap and avoid some of the things I, I saw them doing poorly and that weren't working, weren't effective. 
And so most of my stuff was OJT, but um, I'm grateful for it. And I tried to be a sponge um, and pick it up. And then, you know, once I got out of the, uh, once I got out of the military, I found that a lot of what I witnessed and watched and tried to absorb uh, really helped in the business world as well. In what ways? Well, you know, I, I think that I noticed with, I noticed with some of the leaders that I had, if you knew that they didn't care, like if you, and you, you mentioned, Hey, you know, every time I see you live, order number one, give this dude a hug, you know, cause I, you know, I love people, you know, I love you too, James, even though you're, you're a Marine and, you know, <laughs> I'm a tank, but um, you know, it's like people, you know, people gravitate towards love. You know, they just, they just do all of us want to be loved. They, even the hardest guys out there, they want to be loved. They want to be respected. And I think it's just something that the human heart longs for. And so if you, you know, watching some of the leaders I had, when you knew that they, you know, not only cared about their guys, but they loved their guys and they would do anything for their guys, especially when it cost them the sled dogs would follow those guys into hell and back. They would go anywhere for them. And so that was one of the things that I just noticed. And, you know, I wanted to replicate and I wanted to become as a leader was somebody that didn't just, Hey, do this, do that. I'm the leader, do what I tell you to do, but um, you know, build that bond, you know, through trust, respect, and love to where when an order or, Hey, we're going this direction. And I need you guys to just trust me and go, you know, there's not a lot, there, there, there doesn't need to be a board meeting. There doesn't need to be a whole bunch of questions. They just know that, Hey, Eli's not making this decision or making this call because he hasn't thought this through. And there has, you know, that level of trust never materializes in my opinion, if there's no genuine love and um, you know, just affection for the people that you mean to lead. That was a real difficulty for me. And, and uh, you know, I guess academically what you're talking about would fall under the leadership principle, know your Marines and look out for their welfare, sailors, right. whatever, whatever business you're in, know your people and look out for their welfare. The situation that I was in, you know, running a, a tank platoon remotely, autonomously in my, in my own AO in Afghanistan we're living in the same tent together. If we had a tent, um, you know, my crew on my tank, you know, we were within inches of each other, inches inside this little, tiny, little, little, tiny vehicle, a big yep. vehicle, but small, small space for humans on the inside of it. And I had to, as an officer, maintain some distance, right? Because yep. you can't have the same relationship between officer and enlisted as you do with officer and officer or enlisted and enlisted. But I freaking loved my dudes so much. And I knew everything that I could know about them, right? I knew their sports teams. I know how much sleep they needed. I knew, you know, what kind of food they liked. I knew as much as I could about them. Okay. If they spent too much money on a vacuum cleaner, I knew about that. Okay. Everything that I could possibly know. And, and through knowing them, you know, my affection for them and how much I cared about them grew to, to an amount that almost exceeded my capacity to maintain that distance that, uh, that is a legal requirement within the Marines and, and the Navy. Yeah. 
And gosh, that was, that was an extremely difficult situation for me. And then within that leadership role and within many leadership roles, there's a loneliness that comes with that. And that loneliness can eat at your courage and, uh, and, and fatigue you to levels that, that most people never experience in their lives. How do you deal with, with that type of fatigue? Oh man, that, you know, that's a good one. You know, I just, um, I think I just, I think it comes down to me for, it it comes down to expectation management and just with so many things that I do, I want to make sure that my expectations are, are realistic. And I understand, you know, even like I'm here at my company right now, Bottle Breacher, and on the other side of the wall, I've got a CB and two army guys, you know, that are working and I love those dudes you know, um, but I know exactly what, I know exactly what you're talking about. There are times where I have to, you know, say, Hey, this is what I want done, you know, and I, I need you guys to, I need you guys to do it. And I don't expect, I don't expect to be best friends with these guys because of that necessary separation at times. However, you know, I try to make sure that these guys know that I have an open door policy and, um, know that they can come into my office at any time. If they, if they're, if they're dealing with something tough, if they need to pray about something, you know, I'm happy to, you know, just get into it with them because I tend to believe that the best leaders put people over projects and I, and I do that, but I do it with expectation management, knowing that, Hey, there has to be a little bit of a separation. Um, And, you know, and I think, I think the, I think the guys understand it, you know, they, they get it. They've been in enough environments and they, and it goes back to what I was saying. If people know that you genuinely care, if they know you genuinely care, they get that and, and they'll, they'll follow you to hell and back. And uh, you know, it takes, it takes work. It takes, sometimes you got to blow off a meeting because somebody's struggling at home. Sometimes you got to blow off the phone call. Sometimes you got to blow off even, you know, you know, something that's important to you, like maybe your workout to take time out to like um, be there for, you know, one of your guys, one of the people that you want to lead. But I think if you do it and your people know that you genuinely care and that you're authentic, they'll follow you to hell and back. And they also know that there are times where, you know, James or Eli, you know, can't be a part of something and has to separate themselves because they have to, you know, remain the leader. And so I think it's just expectation management going into it and understanding that, Hey, there are times I wish we were closer. I wish we could hang out more, but you guys know the deal, man. You know, I have to be really careful about how close I get to people. If I want to continue to, um, you know, run this operation effectively. So you come from a small unit leadership background in the seals. Yep. And, and then you created a very successful business with, yep. some, with some innovative and, and interesting products, um, which, you know, we'll, we'll link to, okay. I think bottle breacher is pretty badass. And now you're starting to expand into a whole different type of leadership, but I feel like it's still small unit leadership principles that are going to carry you through. So for those who don't know, Eli's running for Congress and he's going to win. I'm so excited about it. It it like makes me wish that I was part of your district because I think you're going to do wonderful things for those people. But now you're going to be you're going to be representing people that you don't know, and right. and you're going to have to represent people who have 
ideological positions that are, you know, in diabolical opposition to your own. Um, So how, how do you represent such a diverse group of people as what you're going to be stepping into once you win as a congressman? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think that you need to, you need to know what your, obviously you need to know what your policies are, but you need to try and treat everybody, especially the ones that are diabolically opposed as human beings. And you need to try and connect with them on a, you know, a level of humanity. And it goes back to, I talked about expectation management. I have expectation management going into this where I I know I'm going to get death threats. I know people are, there are going to be people that hate me, say nasty things about me, write nasty articles about me. And because my expectation management is such, uh, when it happens, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do everything I can to let it roll off my back, even though it might hurt. Um, and, and when I have those conversations as well with people or when I'm talking to a group that I know, you know, doesn't see the world the way I do and doesn't align with my apologies, I'm going to acknowledge those things. I'm not going to try and avoid them or act like they're not there. Like I had a meeting with a guy yesterday and I knew for a fact him and I didn't see eye to eye on policy. Now he wasn't, you know, he wasn't diabolically opposed. What separated us was maybe 20 degrees. And, you know, I acknowledged it right up front. And I tried to find, you know, common ground with him. And I think that, you know, I think I think that that's something that I'll always try and do, whether it's possible or not, is to, you know, find something that we have in common. And, you know, let's let's connect there and see if we can, you know, find some more common ground. And if we can't, you know, that's a real possibility. And my expectations are set accordingly. But I'm always going to try and find common ground with people. And, you know, I'm always going to try and be a man of integrity and lead in that manner. And I hope that that resonates with people. And why wouldn't it? I mean, hearing that, I have a hard time imagining somebody who's like, well, I, I don't want that guy. You, you know, it, it seems like a layup to have somebody that that's a real human with real experience that they can talk to, even if they disagree with them, they know coming into the conversation that you're going to find something that you can agree on. And then you're going to figure out what it is about the disagreement that causes the separation, right? And then, okay, how can I help you achieve your success? And how can I represent everybody else? Really difficult thing to do. Yeah, it is a really difficult thing to do. And like I said, because I'm big on expectation management, I don't, I don't expect to be able to win over everybody. And that old you know, that old saying from a long time ago, you can please all the people some of the time, some of the people all the time, but you can't please all the people all the time. That's probably as true in politics as it is anywhere, anywhere else. And so, you know, being, being open and willing to talk to anybody, but knowing that there's always going to be, you know, a certain percentage and in probably in 2021, almost 50% of people that, uh, that aren't going to see things the way that I see them. You know, it's it's not something that I welcome or love, but it's just a reality. And it's something that if you get into this world, you have to be willing to accept and you have to look for opportunities to break through. But you have to be willing to walk away from any conversation, any meeting, um, knowing that it could go poorly, because if you're you know, a lot of people aren't willing anymore to say, hey, let's James, let's just agree to disagree. Right. Well, you know, it's like, I'm okay with sometimes saying, Hey, you know what, we're just going to have to agree to disagree on this one and, uh, and, and, and walk away. And so 
it goes back to the expectation management thing for me and, you know, being willing to, you know, have disagreements with folks and also, you know, be slandered and, you know, called names and stuff like that. Because for me, this is about, it's about, it's the same thing for me is why probably you and I joined the military. We wanted to serve something bigger than ourselves. Um, and we thought we could do something about it. And so I, that's why I'm going into this. And I know my, my stuff stinks. I know I'm not perfect. I know that there's uh, so many people out there in so many areas, you know, that are subject matter experts where I don't know anything. I know my knowledge is limited, but I do believe that if you're humble and you're willing to surround yourself with smarter, smarter people, and you, you're willing to hear people out and you're willing to be challenged as a leader and you're willing, you know, to be confronted and even open to changing your mind if somebody can present, a, you know, a better, you know, a better way to do things. I think if, if you're willing to do that and you have courage and character, I still think you can get things done. And that's one of the reasons that I'm going into this. Changing your mind is a is an incredibly difficult task. And um, my my friend Cody Rich uh taught me an interesting technique for it and he said that when he feels very strongly about something he likes to to check himself by by thinking what would have to be true for me to believe the opposite of what i do now and understanding things in opposites is a really good way to actually understand the totality of the circumstance there was a famous horse trainer that uh lived here and he was like the first of the of the horse whispers okay which is you know a made up romantic term of course but this guy was was a horse trainer and he was a cowboy um his name was tom dorrance and you know he became a legend and, and changed the way the horses were trained forever his brother bill was very much the same way with cattle he's very very good with cattle exceptionally good with horses as well but one of the things that bill said is if you're trying to move a cow or something like that, and it's not going well, it's not going how you want it to try doing the exact opposite as hard as you can. And uh, I found that 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 principle and that philosophy works really well with all kinds of problems that you just seem stuck against. Okay, maybe you're doing the exact wrong thing. So let's try the exact opposite. Maybe that works. But if nothing else, it'll help you understand it that much better. But just having it in your mind and in your heart that you're willing to change your mind. Um, if, if the information changes, that's wonderful. Yeah. And I think that's why I'm grateful. I'm grateful to come from the special operations community. And I'm also grateful to come from the entrepreneurial world as well, because in, in the, in both of those worlds, it doesn't matter what your intentions are. All that really matters is what results you're able to yield. Right. And in special operations, if something didn't, if something wasn't working, we had to quickly adapt. You know, we had to be very flexible in unconventional warfare. I mean, the, you know, the theme is right there in the title. You have to be willing to be unconventional. Think outside the box. If something's not working, quickly try something else and repeat, repeat, repeat until you find something that, something that works, something that moves the needle. And I think that I'm so grateful because I know I'm going into just a juggernaut of, uh, an institution, the federal. <laughs> if you think that you're going to go into the federal government, even as a congressman, and quickly make change, you're 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 a fool. In my opinion, you're a fool. Now, if you're willing to if you're willing to go in, you know, keep your mouth shut, keep your head on a swivel, learn as much as you can as quickly as you can, and start building a coalition or some alliances. 
and, you know, start, you know, trying new things, seeing if you can, you know, if you can put your shoulder to the wheel and affect a small change. And it, again, it goes back to expectation management. If you're willing to do that, I think you can make some things happen, but I get so tired of seeing these, these folks that, you know, and I, and I know that people are tired of them too, with, you know, their, their stump speeches and their rah, 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 I'm going to go in there and I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing, you know, it's like, I think that you need to be more realistic in, in, you know, your expectation as a leader, what you're going to be able to get done, but also you need to set the people that you're trying to lead. You need to set those expectations accordingly as well. And, you know, I, that's something I don't see a lot. And I think we've trained ourselves, especially with politicians to, you know, we, we almost like gravitate towards these bombastic individuals that promise you the world. And then two years later, you're completely let down and frustrated and saying, well, you said this, that, and this, and I believed you. Well, who, who's, you know, who's the fool, right? It's like, if you think that, if you think that you're going to send, you know, and, and I'm, and I'm not trying to undermine the importance of, you know, elected officials. What I'm, what I'm talking about is, is that this is a huge generational, you know, quagmire, a swamp, if you will, you know, it's, it's very hard to affect change. And it was actually designed that way with checks and balances to where not one, you know, branch of government could just steamroll. And I mean, they wanted, our founding fathers wanted there to be fights. They want, they wanted there to be gridlock so that, you know, you couldn't just take this thing off, off its tracks quickly. But I think going back to something you said earlier, James, I think that we need more men and women with, you know, courage and character who aren't swayed by the opulence and the, you know, uh, the title and the prestige that might come with, you know, the position. And, and that's, you know, as a younger man, I, I probably would have been. And as I've gotten older and I've had a little bit of success under my belt and, you know, even, you know, a acquired a little bit of money, I've realized that none of that stuff leads to fulfillment anyway, you know, and this life ain't about you. And if, and if you don't understand that, you're never going to be able to be a good, you know, servant of the people. You're never going to be able to be a good leader either because you, I think selfishly, most of us tend to try and make things about ourselves. And I think that's what, you know, I see when I look at the political landscape and people that say that they're going to fight for us constantly let us down and it turns out most of the time they end up fighting, you know, fighting for themselves and their own career and their own pop pocketbook. And, you know, it's just like, that was one of the reasons I, I said, Hey, I can keep complaining about this or I can throw my hat in the ring and try and do something about it. But anyway, I know I'm, you know, ranting there, but you know, that's, uh, I think we need more people that understand that. Yeah. I, I think you're spot on, man. Um, I was up for a uh, fish and wildlife commission a few, a few years ago and people came at me that the same way that they're going to come at you, they, they try to find any, any aspect that they can twist about your character and say, this is why this person is bad. And I ended up talking to another commissioner and he said, look, even if you get in, you're not going to be able to turn the ship around. You may not even be able to move it in the right direction but right. you might be able to keep it from getting worse. And I right. feel like that is a realistic expectation. And eventually, if you keep it from not getting worse, you might be able 
to move it towards getting better a little bit. And, and that is also realistic and hopeful. Um, and I, unfortunately, that's the best we can hope for is that we can get incrementally a little bit better. And over time, we can get back on track to, you know, a time where people can actually see how much they have in common in their beliefs. And it doesn't turn into this 50-50 split. Like, it's just amazing to me that we've gotten to a point where, where it's like that, where, you know, you're, you're on two sides of a coin rather than a million different points on a sphere. And I don't know why in the hell would you want to do this? Like this doesn't, this isn't the the best thing for Eli. This isn't the best thing for your family. This sure as hell isn't the best thing for your business. So why even take the risk? No, I, and I appreciate you bringing that up, you know, and because it's not about me, that's why, because, you know, I, I I was raised to understand that this isn't about you. And uh, so that's one of the reasons I joined the Navy. I dropped out of school my senior year in college at the University of Arizona, a couple miles down the road to join the Navy and try and become a SEAL because I knew it wasn't about me. And because I knew that if, if I wanted to see others enjoy this, what I would consider a blessing to live in the United States of America, it, I, I knew that it didn't just come freely. I, I mean, I know we say that and it, we say it at nauseum. We say freedom isn't free. And it's become so sloganized that I don't think, I think it's lost a lot of its meaning, but there's a lot of truth to that. And that, you know, Ronald Reagan said a long time ago, he said, freedom is always one generation away from extinction. And if we look back over history, over the course of mankind, what we have here, this experiment, it's, it's not really normal. Typically what people do is they get into power and then they try and, you know, balance the scales in a way to where um, they take power and freedom and resources from other people and selfishly, you know, use it for their own good. It was very rare to have a group of leaders like we did our found our founders after they, you know, basically defeated um, the British and then try and create a government, a Republic, you know, that was of foreign by the people. It was, where we had the power. It was so, it was so unique. And so I understood that, you know, for this unique experiment to continue to go, you were going to need continually people to fight for it because it goes against human nature, human nature as leaders, because I think that many of us, I think that we're all born sinful. And I think most of us are greedy. Most of us are selfish, myself included. I think our natural desire or been as human beings is to be greedy and selfish and try and take, 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 take. And so I think that to balance that and to keep this experiment going, it takes, you know, good men who are willing to stand up, throw it all, throw it all on the line to make sure that the the next generation can enjoy it and reap the benefit of opportunity and freedom. And I have kids, you know, I have a 10 year old and a 14 year old and I want to make sure that they have an opportunity to enjoy some of the freedoms that you and I grew up with. And that's why. That's awesome, dude. Good for you. And, and good for us that there are people like you that, that see it that way. And that's, that's really what the experiment requires, right? Is, is people who are willing to sacrifice for everyone else. You've already done it. You know, you, you, you've already, already given more than anyone could ask of you. And, and here you are 
trying to give more still. And I, I commend you so much for that because it's scary to say, okay, everything's going good right now. I'm going to extend myself out here so that I can, I can spread that good out to other people in, in a way that's going to be bad for me. Freaking good on you, dude. Now, one of the encouraging thing too, James, is that it's not just me. You, you have, I think there's seven seals running right now and you have, I think at least three SF guys. And I want to see that list grow, man. I want to see some Marine Marsoc guys, some, you know, some tank commanders, some, I want to see more veterans get involved. And, and I want to qualify that by saying just because you were a veteran doesn't mean that you're not just as susceptible to corruption or stupidity or ignorance. But I will say this, and I believe this is the truth. If you were willing to die for it, it makes it harder for you to sell it out. And I think so much of what we see going on with our country is people who are just willing to sell it out for their own good. That selfishness that I was just talking about. Hey, James, you know, all you have to do is vote with us over here, buddy. And then, you know, on the back end, I've got a cushy lobbying job. You will never have to work another day in your life or, you know, whatever those, whatever those, you know, deals or, you know, backhanded corruption looks like. And it's just like, I think we need men and more men and women who are willing to die for it. Because again, I think it makes it harder to sell it out when you were willing to die for it at one time. Yeah, absolutely. Now I know there's going to be people listening to this that are like, wait, he's talking about filling Congress with, with all these war fighters. Um, and there's going to be people that think that that means, okay, these are people who, look to war as, as the first answer, as, as the solution to many problems, nothing can be farther from the truth. Right. Because people who have been there, who have had other people on foreign soil try to kill them and have, have had to, you know, in some cases, kill those people in return, right? That's a bad thing. We don't want that. And the people who have been there and done that will do everything to avoid it. And I would say much more so than the people who have not been there. I agree. So if, if that's the fear, if that's the fear that, hey, we can't have a bunch of veterans in there because they're going to they're going to look for war. I would say that the exact opposite is true. I 100 percent agree with you. Like if if you're just some bureaucrat in D.C., you know, who's never who's never had to lay it on the line, who's never had anybody try to kill them or had to actually, you know, kill the enemy. Um, it's easy. It's, it, it would, it wouldn't be that hard to just say, you know what? Yeah. Let's, let's go attack these guys for whatever reason. But to your point, when you've actually lost friends in war and you, and, and you, you're still in contact with their family and you know how their families are still grieving that loss and it never goes away. Again, it makes it harder to jump into, you know, something kinetic where, you know, lives will be lost. And on top of it, it's not just American lives being lost, but American treasure as well. You know, I mean, these these wars that we've been engaged in, they cost a ton of money. And guess who's paying for that? The taxpayer. And, and it's not it's not even like we're paying for it right now. I mean, we have 30 trillion dollars in debt. We have 30 trillion dollars in debt. And that's on the backs of our kids and our grandkids. And guess what they're doing in Washington, D.C. right now? They're trying to tack on another $3.5 right now. And it's just like it gets to the point where even the greatest experiment of all time, the United States of America, can only handle so much weight. And sooner or later, it will collapse, too. And I, I feel like we're witnessing 
witnessing the uh, the beginning of that right now. And that, again, you asked the question, why? That's why, because I love this country. I love all the people that live here. And I want to make sure, maybe not make sure is probably not even the best way to say it. I want to do my part to make sure that the next generations get to experience it as well. I want to, I want to talk about the number trillion a little bit because that's been getting thrown out there more and more over the last few years. And as of late, these spending bills include trillions. We're talking about trillions in debt. Um, so it's impossible to conceive the value of that number, but we can understand time a little bit. So um, a million seconds is like 11 days. Okay. A trillion seconds is over 31,000 years. So let's say we have this cool little printer and every second, 1001, it prints off a dollar bill. Okay. It's going to take us a hundred thousand years for this printer to come up with enough money to pay for this one bill. Yeah. It's yeah. crazy. It's too much money. It is. And the sad thing is, I think they're, I think what they're banking on James, I think they're ba banking on our complacency as citizens and that we're so tied up in Netflix and our, the fact that we've got things like Grubhub and we can just call somebody and have them deliver whatever food we want to watch. And we're so prosperous and so free here in this country that most of us have just tuned out and we just see this stuff. Oh, it's just politics as usual. It doesn't really matter. I mean, you know, one year it's a Democrat in there, the next year it's a Republican and it'll keep going on and on and on. And I, I don't think that I don't think that enough people recognize these threats for what they are. And I don't think that because we're so we're so blessed and we think that America is so robust that it couldn't possibly ever fold in on itself and collapse. And there's a reason that every great empire has sooner or later imploded and most of them implode from within. And I think that's what's going on right here and right now. And it's another reason why. I'm glad I come from a business community where you can't just print money. You have to make money and then you have to be very wise and very smart with how you spend it. And, um, and I think we need more people that have owned small businesses, which I believe is the lifeblood of this country economically. I want to see more small business owners and more veterans get into, uh, get into, you know, leadership roles in, in our government because, Again, if you understand, if you've ever had to run a business, if you've ever had to sign a paycheck, if you've ever had to fire somebody or hire somebody or understand that that's the decisions that you're making affect not only that employee, but their family, um, it makes you a lot more fiscally responsible. And I don't see a lot of fiscal responsibility with the leaders that uh, we currently have. I agree. And I want to talk about war fighting a, a little bit more because there, there's another side to this, and that is. If you have somebody who's been there and done it, they're going to look for every other solution first. But when it comes time to fight, they're going to be the ones that know how to do it and, and what to support throughout that process. Where I was deployed in Afghanistan and during the time that I was there, which was 2012, 2013, President Obama was in office and he very much wanted to, you know, end the war, like as a president, that would have been a good thing for him to kind of hang his hat on for right. one thing. And, and who wouldn't want to end that conflict? Right. right. 
but what he was working, the, the strategy was to draw down and, and to give fewer resources and fewer resources. So for, for several months, my tank unit didn't have food. Okay. We didn't have the very basic things that we needed to be able to accomplish our mission. When I was building up my platoon to train, to go to war, we didn't have enough money for fuel for the tanks to be able to train. I went out to the golf course on Camp Lejeune and I rented golf carts and we turned golf carts into tanks and had Marines throwing golf balls at each other so that we could practice formations and fire commands. This should never freaking happen. That's unacceptable that if you put somebody in a place where, where they're putting their life on the line in order to accomplish the nation's mission, they need to have the resources to be able to do it. And one of the major things that Congress does is it sets budgets and it allocates funds for these different projects. And, and uh, gosh, we need people in there who know where that money needs to go and how much of it is required in order to accomplish that task. Uh, you know, I can't agree with you more. I remember during the same time frame, even, yeah, right around the same time frame you just mentioned, I was at uh, NSW Trade It. That's the command that trains SEALs. It was NSW Group 1, so it was the command that trains SEALs on the West Coast. And I remember talking to uh, some of the leadership there, and they were telling me how much their budget has had been drawn down and watching these guys try and um, allocate and make sure that the training was as good as it could possibly be. But knowing that the guys going downrange to uh, do some of the toughest missions we have – you know, we're working uh, with far less than what they what they had in the past. And it, it kind of it's kind of frustrating and to see that type of thing happen, knowing what these guys are going to be facing downrange. And so I completely agree with you. And I think it definitely helps when you have men and women who have been there, been in theater, been in combat, been in units where they understand warfare, how it works so that they can make sure that you know, the next generation of warfighter won't be kind of hung out to dry like that, driving golf carts around, you know, throwing golf balls at each other. We had a blast doing that, by the way. But, uh, you know, and, and that goes back into that creativity bit, right? So it would have been easy for me to say, okay, we don't have fuel. We can't train. It is what it is. But it's like, okay, what, what can we do? Well, I, I can afford to go rent four golf carts. So let's go try that. And it helped, you know, we, we did very, very well. And, and it was because of that creativity and fostering an initiative for creativity amongst my guys as well. So that when they came up against something where they didn't have the resources that they thought that they needed, that they would get creative and and how to, how to get those resources. And uh, to be completely honest, there are times that they came up with that resource and I did not want to know how. <laughs> but that's getting it done. And, uh, you know, you, you find that, you find that all over the military, people that figure it out. Talked about expectation management earlier in the podcast. And I got to imagine being uh, an officer in charge of Marines. That's got to be an expectation. Sometimes the boys are going to figure something out and you just don't want to know how they do it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But I'm still proud of the little savages. Are they teaching that in the academies, James, or the uh, ROTC programs? the the creativity aspect no the uh management especially when you when you want to lead marines that hey sometimes you just don't 
just don't ask. I think think that's more of the on the job training aspect of it. You know, I was very idealistic coming into the military and that was my reason for, for doing it. It's like, Hey, I'm, I'm going to be able to, to make the difference. And, and, you know, my sacrifice is, is going to matter. And recently we've all as a community had to come to grips with, with the reality that maybe it, it didn't in all the ways that, that we imagined that it would have and, and watching, watching Afghanistan fall to the state that it did, you know, that was, was, and, and continues to be incredibly difficult. Uh, we paid attention nationally longer than I thought we would, honestly. And it, it's over now. Like it's no longer in the news cycles. It's like, nah, we don't care. And we won't care again until, the Taliban or, or whatever replaces them rears up and, and bites us or one of our friends again, uh, right. which, which is inevitable, but yeah, we, it, it's over like t- 20 years of warfare, two months later. Yeah. Moving on. Yeah. You know, it's a, the whole thing is unfortunate. And I think, uh, it, I think it was hard for many of us to watch, especially because anybody with any common sense, you know, could have said, why, why are we doing it that why? I mean, we all knew that pulling out was inevitable and what needed to happen, but, you know, watching it go down the way it did, I feel like I could have gotten a classroom, you know, a focus group of 12 year olds together and been like, okay, this is the situation. This is the mission. This is what we're up against. How do you guys think we should do this? Almost, I guarantee they would have come up with a more rational plan than we did. And it just, it's so, it's so frustrating to watch, but going back to the thing I keep harping on expectation management, when I saw this group get in there, you know, I was expecting a huge cluster across the board, not just in Afghanistan, but everywhere else. And I, I, I believe that's uh, if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, that's what you're watching go down. And so, you know, I, I guess that's what we deserve. I hope not. I hope not, but it's what we have. And you can bemoan the situation and wish that it was otherwise, but that changes nothing. Right. And, and, and that's what led you to the place that you're in. Talk to me about bottle breacher a little bit. What, what's cracking down there? Yeah. Well, um, let's see what is cracking down here. You know, we're just doing our thing. We're uh, we're in full prep mode for Christmas. We do the, we do about 40% of our business in the last uh, three to four months of the year. And, uh, huge Christmas gifts. So if people want to buy Christmas gifts for their, you know, their, their dad, their brother, you know, their son, their uncle, cousin, whatever. Um, that here's, here's the bottom line. If you don't own a bottle breacher, you know, first of all, correct yourself, maybe, <laughs> maybe go get wet and sandy, do 20 pushups. Out. But, uh, the, <laughs> most people have never held a 50 cal round in their hand. And it's one of the oldest, uh, rounds that we've used in the military. We've used it for over a century. Um, and so it's about five and a half inches long. Um, it, it's a real 50 cal round. It's just inert. It no longer shoots. It's got no primer, no powder. It opens your beer. You can put your name on it. You can put a bunch of logos on it. Cause we have a bunch of laser engravers. And what I found is James, one of the reasons this product and our products have been so successful is because guys never really grow up. We just get cooler toys. And, you know, you, you watch, you give a guy a bottle breacher and then watch him open his beer with it. And it's like, you know, 
I mean, it's like giving a little kid, a, you know, his first toy car. I mean, he carries it around, he puts it in his pocket and, you know, he shows all of his friends. So it's just a cool gift. And um, that's really the industry that we're in is the gift giving industry. And, you know, something that's something that people are, you know, from the beginning of time until, you know, you and I are long gone, people will still be doing is, you know, wanting to, you know, show their love and appreciation and gratitude to somebody else. Um, and so, uh, you know, we just give, you know, our customers a unique way to do that. Yeah. I think it's neat. Um, it's how I like to open beers for sure. And of course I love, I love the 50 Cal. I'm a big fan. You know, you've got, uh, we, the people tattooed on you. I've got 50 Cal's tattooed on me. You know, we, <laughs> it's a, it's, it's, it's a deep, uh, deep connection. And, you know, we, we started this episode talking about love and, and talking about fraternity. Div- I can't even remember the book. It's like a love languages book or something, but my love language is, is giving people things. That's what makes me feel really happy. And that's how I show people that I love them is by giving them things. And uh, I think that this is a, a great, a great example of, of a way to do that. And I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, that's a great book. I don't know what the uh, demographics of your, your, your podcast uh, base is, but all for all you guys out there, if you've never read that book, the love languages, the five love, love languages, it'll really help you out with your, your significant other. If you fi- can figure out what, what it is that makes them tick. I think there's like, you know, um, affirmation gifts, there's uh, quality time, affection, touch, you know, there's, if you figure that out, it'll go a long way. And like, you know, how to, you know, support and improve your relationship, which is important. Very important. Very yeah. important. Yeah. How's your family doing, um, doing with all this chaos and, and sort of understanding that over the next year that there's going to be a tidal wave of, of chaos that they've never experienced before. Yeah. I think that, for the circumstances, I think that we're doing pretty well. And I'm grateful in a way that this isn't the first storm my family has faced uh, professionally. Like most people, uh, it's it's hard to change careers at 35 years old and go into something completely different. And that's what my family went through when I got out of the Navy and we started Bottle Breacher. And then, you know, mom and dad were completely inundated and, in, you know, trying to figure out how to get this company up and running so that we could provide and not just provide paycheck to paycheck, but for our kids' futures. And so my kids have witnessed and watched a lot of sacrifice over, you know, the course of their lives. They're getting to watch some more right now. And as a dad, I'm just hoping and praying that my kids understand that one, that life isn't about them, but I want them to uh, recognize the example that me and their mom have tried to set for them and that you can't be you can't be everywhere at once. Life isn't about you. And if you try and incorporate mission into your life, you will live a much more fulfilled life. And I think, you know, my kids are like everybody else's kids, you know, they want to have fun. They want to have a good time. Um, and I think as we're young, you know, it take, takes a while to, you know, to beat that selfishness out of us and just, you know, it takes time to realize that this life isn't about us, but, you know, um, my family's doing good with it. My wife is so used to living an unconventional life with me that I think it's, it's just become second nature for her. And she's phenomenal at, um, supporting me and, you know, just taking care of our girls. And, you know, she's, my wife is probably the hardest working person I've ever met in my life to the point where it's kind of annoying where you're like, Hey, uh, it's, why don't you go ahead and sit down? 
you're making the rest of us feel lazy. And uh, I can't relax when you're, you know, constantly, you know, being a busybody over here. But um, she's just an amazing woman. And I, I think that's one of the only reasons I can do the things that I do is because I recognize that I'm so weak in so many areas. And if I don't have strong people, you know, over here on the couch, you guys can't see him. Actually, I'm going to let you get, you guys see this guy over here. Pat, wave. What's up, Pat? That's my campaign manager, Pat. You know, he's, uh, he's really strong in a lot of areas that I'm really weak in. And without, without Pat and without the rest of my team, I couldn't be doing what I'm doing now. And without my family and my girls, it, you know, I, I just love having kids sometimes, man. You'll be like so caught up in the moment of what you got to do today. And your my little daughter will walk up and say that, you know, the, the most simple but profound thing in the world. And it'll just make me laugh. And, you know, it just, oh man, being a family man has been so helpful to me and not only reminding me that this isn't about me, but they also, you know, just the amount of love that they show, show me that I'm able to give to them. You know, it really, you know, puts things back in perspective every single day that there are bigger things in life to, you know, um, you know, running a business, uh, being in the military and even uh, running for office. Good for you. Good, good for all of us. You know, the funny thing, James, I will say this, dude, the funny thing is about this whole run for Congress, dude, I thought this, I've always, you know, when I was hanging out with you, I got to hang out with you for the first time, I think in Wyoming or Montana, wherever the hell we were at with SIG. uh, And I was like, dude, this is going to be my year. It's going to be my year, dude. I'm going to do some hunting this year, you know, (laughs) and then, and then, you know, I, I start headed down you know, the wrong path towards politics, man. And so I'm gonna have to put that on the back burner again, but one of these days, bro, I'm coming and we're going to we're gonna go shoot an elk, dude. It's going to be awesome. Good. I'll, I'll, I'll catch you on that one. And, and I look forward to it. And hopefully I haven't been dragged down uh, the road that you're on in the meantime. Well, I hope, I kind of hope you are, man. Like I said, we need more, we need more men and women of character that we're willing to die for it. So they don't sell it out so easily. Yeah. All right. Well, I appreciate you, dude. I appreciate your time. Appreciate your sacrifice. And I wish you all the luck in the world, all the luck in the world. You brother. I appreciate it. All right. October, November, December, they're just the best months out of the year, right? Whether it's for work or hunting or fishing, the holidays, spending time with your family, just it's awesome, right? And we've got some nice cold mornings now, and you get to go out and have a a warm drink in the duck blind or out on the hillside where you're glassing for for mule deer or elk or or sitting in a tree stand waiting for a whitetail to come past. Or you're working on the job site and you get to take a break and have some nice warm coffee waiting for you. It's pretty nice. Having a cold drink at the end of the day, that makes everything a little bit better too. My favorite Stanley item right now is the 14-ounce titanium travel mug super lightweight because it's made out of titanium, so I'm willing to take it with me when I'm hunting, throw it in my pack. Fits in every cup holder out there, and it just seems to be the right amount of coffee. Uh, I I like it. It's a really cool item, and it fits a niche that I didn't have uh, filled in like any of my other drinkware categories, I guess. Uh, If you're looking for a Christmas present for somebody or just a gift that you want to help them out with, I recommend this because it's pretty cool and it's something that they don't have already. The way most discount codes work, completely honest, is uh, if you use it, then whoever gave you that code gets a kickback. Now, I'm not a salesman and I want nothing to do with that. 
So I'm going to pass along to you a discount code that Stanley gave me because they're great supporters of this podcast and they're great supporters of this audience, which I love. So if you use the discount code 6RANCH, the number 6, the word ranch, you'll get 25% off anything you order from stanley1913.com. I get nothing back from that. I don't want anything. I just want to pass along some savings to you and save you a little bit of money and get you connected with this great company that makes really great products. And as we move through fall and, and get into winter and the holidays, just hope everybody's doing well and, and having a good time and, and that you get to get out there and connect with nature and, and connect with your friends and family and have a nice warm drink while you're doing it. We're living in interesting times. If you go to the grocery store right now, you might not be able to find beef or pork or chicken or pet food or toilet paper. And buying beef from a ranch has always been tough because most people don't have enough freezer space or they don't know a rancher or don't live near one. The Six Ranch is solving that for you. This year, we only have eight spots left in our grassroots beef club. And it works like this. The first week of every month, we ship you a cooler full of all-natural grass-fed Coriani steaks, roasts, and burger from December until May. And being a member in this club also gets you an invite to come tour the Six Ranch during calving season in May and stay for a hosted dinner. Deliveries are available to Oregon, Washington, California, parts of Idaho, and Nevada. Now, this ranch has been in my family since 1884. It's one of the oldest businesses in the state of Oregon. We raise our cattle ethically and use traditional cowboy practices blended with modern grazing techniques. We also put a huge amount of work into wildlife conservation for species like mule deer, salmon, steelhead, rainbow trout, upland bird species. This is healthy beef that you can feel good about eating. Learn more about the Six Ranch and get one of the last shares available at sixranch.com. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch podcast. I'll catch you next week.